This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. A little dead for you on this Thursday. Talk about a deal coming down, actually, on, on this Thursday. Uh, and also talk about conviction. How about $5.7 billion worth of conviction? Invesco betting that much, uh, that active money management is not dead. Nicely done. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> I knew like the synapses would start working. It's <laughs> This is, folks, among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal today. In fact, I think it's the most read story or second most read story of the day. Charlie Stein is U.S. investing reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from our Boston Bureau. Hey, Charlie, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. Um, bam, we talk so much about this passive manage or passively managed money world and yet Invesco almost six billion dollars to go into active management tell us about this deal and why they're doing it well it's a bold bet Carol as you pointed out but uh, we spoke to the Invesco CEO today and he said you know people are flat out wrong thinking that all the money's going to passive he's not saying passive is going away in fact Invesco has a pretty big ETF business that's almost all passive. But he says there's going to be a continuing demand for active strategies, especially among institutional investors, that we may go into a period where active funds do better. And in particular, the kind of active funds that are run by Oppenheimer, which are mostly invested in securities outside the United States. And so when you look at this deal, Charlie, there's been a lot of consolidation across the asset management business. What is it about this one that's different, uh, especially amid, as I say, all this uh, getting together that's happening? Well, I think we'll we'll wait to find out if it's really different, Jason. If you've looked at the previous deals that have happened in asset management, Janice Henderson was one, Aberdeen, and uh, Standard Life. They haven't really worked out very well. The companies got bigger, they got greater scale, but people are still pulling their money out of them, and the stocks have done quite poorly. Uh, in this case, you know, we'll find out if the stock is going to do poorly over time. But again, the CEO here is convinced that there's some real economies of scale, that there are some real savings, and that they can take the funds that Oppenheimer runs and basically sell them to an audience all around the world. So he says, we know how to do deals. We've done deals in the past. This one's going to work. Time will tell. (laughs) Exactly. But I also do wonder, like I think about, Jason, when we've got some guests on, you know, um, and Charlie, that... When it comes to the global markets or international marketplace, you often it's about stock picking. You it, buying the market isn't necessarily a sure thing, especially when you get into the emerging market areas. Like you really have to do your homework, understand the companies, um, and so that may lend itself better to an actively managed type fund versus a passive fund when it comes to uh, the international world, Charlie. 
Yeah, I think that's true, Carolyn. If you look at the numbers about redemptions, where people are pulling their money is mainly still out of U.S. equity funds. The feeling is among a lot of investors, I can buy an ETF, I can buy an index fund, I'll do as well as the stock pickers here. When you get outside the United States, and again, as you point out in the emerging markets, there's more confidence that the stock pickers can beat the indexes, that, that you really have to know something here to do better. And this is really where Oppenheimer specializes. Their biggest fund is an emerging market fund. They have a lot of global equity funds. Again, it's a bet that this is an area in active management that where you can get out performance. Well, and part of the appeal here, Charlie, if, if I'm reading this right, is higher fees. I mean, one of the big drawbacks for someone who's building a big platform around passive and, and ETF is those are very, very cheap for investors. You just Free get, in some cases. <laughs> right, exactly. Great point, Fidelity offering uh, those free funds. So how much does that play, from what you can tell, how much does that play into their thinking here, just higher fees that they need? I think it's it's a big deal. If you look at the, some of the biggest funds in in the Oppenheimer portfolio, a lot of them charge more than one percent, uh, you know, on assets as their expense ratio. That's pretty high. It's not extremely high for global and emerging market funds, but it's a lot higher than you're going to see in domestic funds. And I think the bet here is that even if there's fee pressure out there. Even if the fees come down some, these are still going to be relatively expensive funds, and that means more revenue for Invesco. Right. Charlie Stein, U.S. investing reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from our bureau up in Boston. A big deal in the asset management world, Carol Invesco yeah. and Oppenheimer. Two well-known names getting together as well. A lot of history in both of them. Well, what's interesting, and we're seeing this, I think, throughout the money management fields, uh, field, is that you do see firms getting bigger and bigger, amassing more and more assets under their house. Uh, some of it has to do with fees and being able to offer you know, different customers, different products. Yeah. But man, that is certainly a trend that we've seen uh, pick up as of late. Well, and they're getting a lot of competition from maybe some unlikely places. I think back to the Business Week story around Betterment yes. uh, just a week ago mm -hmm. that really dug into a much more competitive landscape going forward. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. A little shiver down my spine there. And I live in Sleepy Hollow. This is like a national <laughs> holiday time. Uh, that is, of course, the theme music from Halloween, inspired by, in part, our colleague Peter Coy's yes. column uh, and piece this week in Bloomberg Business Week, talking about the spookily quiet, you get it, spooky, Nicely spookily done. quiet, I get it. Uh, U.S. markets up until recently. Peter joining Carol and myself in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. So, Peter, walk us through your thinking here, because what we look to you for, what all of us look to you for, is to make some sense mm. of a market that isn't making a huge amount of sense right now, or is it? Well, let's go back to the spookily quiet thing because the markets really were unusually calm. The five calmest quarters of the last 20 years, all since the beginning of 2017. So we had this blue skies. And then out of nowhere last week, we had two days in a row where the market fell, the S&P fell 5.2% over two sessions. And that was the ninth biggest increase in volatility over its sort of baseline level in the history of the S&P 500 and its predecessor indices. So really, it was a perfect example of like something coming out of nowhere. 
And volatility tends to be persistent. So once a burst of it starts, it takes a while for markets to calm down again. And we're seeing that again now. We had a big up day, and everybody said, okay, we can rest. <laughs> and th- but now is another down day. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think we all were trying to explain the drop-offs, yeah. uh, whether it was concern over trade policy, right. whether it was higher oil prices. There were a lot of things right. going on. The other thing is, and we've had this as a back, backdrop, too, President Trump, once again, criticizing the Federal Reserve and higher interest rates. Right. Interest rates, maybe he's onto something. Well, that's what I said in my articles that, you know, in a, in a way, Trump is right to, to finger interest rates as one of the reasons behind the stock market's weakness. Or I think it's probably wrong. A lot of people would say he's wrong is in saying that the Fed is making a mistake, you know, loco, crazy. Right. Because, in fact, the economy is running quite hot now, part because of Trump's own policies, tax cuts and so on. Uh, and it probably needs slightly higher interest rates. Uh, so a lot of people would say, yeah, the Fed does need to raise rates even at the possible cost of alarming the stock market. All right. So let's talk about the Fed for a second. Today at the Economic Club of New York, uh, Randy Quarles was there addressing the club, of which you are a member. Uh, you were in the room. What did you hear him say? So what Randy caught your Quarles attention? is a vice chairman in charge of supervision, and yet he was invited to talk, or he chose to talk, about uh, monetary policy. Yeah. It was not his main thing. And he, he kind of seemed to relish the occasion. <laughs> Apparently, I did not know this. He's a pilot. And so he used a aviation metaphor. He said, there's an expression when you're learning how to fly a plane about don't chase the needles. Uh, you know, in other words, don't pay too much attention to the gauges because they just might be wrong. Ah. So like if you that can be interpreted different ways. If you saw the inflation, um, it looks still low, then you could say. Oh, therefore, we don't need to raise rates. But what if, the, what if that's wrong? Yeah. And so that would be sort of a bearish take on it. But, but you could also look at it uh, in a more of a, a dovish way. Other indicators could be telling you, yeah, yeah, time to raise rates, time to raise rates, and then it could be too soon. So it, was, it, it kind of fits with the Jay Powell right. mantra of, you know, look at what's actually happening not what theoretically you would expect to happen under these circumstances. Right, and don't get too married to the theory. Or, and, and, or don't, also don't get too married to any single yeah. indicator. Try to look uh, co- across the board of every possible indicator that could bear on So it. is this different from the data-dependent Fed that I feel like Janet Yellen preached about for I, so I long? I think it's sort of a different way of thinking about data dependence. It's, it's very uh, much... It's, it's kind of a modern scientific way of thinking in a way in the, in the sense that uh, you need to look at not just what the numbers say, but uh, how much weight to put on any single number. Right, right. Uh, and then in the Q&A, he, he was kind of talking about how he can actually imagine that the economy might be able to run at 3% annually, which is quite a bit higher than right. the Fed wow. consensus. Yeah. So he revealed himself, at least to me, to be more of a dove than I thought. Right. That I had thought. All right. Well, check out Peter. Uh, his story is featured in the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's out tomorrow. You can read it now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. It's a great story that really looks into the relationship too between stocks and bonds and whether or not investors, the mindset on Wall Street, has changed to one of a higher interest rate. Uh, a, a, a good weekend read. Candidly, it's a good weekend read to make you sound smart. <laughs> a That's what we do here. Little cognac and a little Peter Coy. Uh, <laughs> 
teach your children well. That's exactly what Khan Academy is doing. And if you don't know what Khan Academy is, well, you're kind of, I think, living under a rock, to be quite honest. Uh, Or to be fair, you maybe don't have kids. Khan Academy videos, they've been viewed by more than one and a half billion times. It's a nonprofit. It's been on a mission since 2005 to really teach the world uh, and give them a world-class education, anyone, anyone and anywhere. Sal Khan is the founder of Khan Academy, joining us on the phone from Mountain View, California, to talk about using mastery learning. I love this topic. Great to have you here uh, with Jason and myself. Um, Sal, tell us, though, what exactly is mastery learning? Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, mastery learning is this idea. It's not something that I came up with. It's arguably the oldest way of learning, this idea that uh, once, if you're trying to learn something advanced, learn the more basic thing first, master it, and then move on to the advanced thing. It's common sense, but it's not the way a traditional academic model is structured. In a traditional school, uh, we're all grouped together by age or maybe perceived ability, and then we're all moved together at a set pace. And let's say there's a test on basic exponents, and I get a C, you get a B. Even though we identified gaps, I didn't know 20 30% of the material, the whole class will then move on to the, the next topic. It might be advanced exponents, somehow expecting me to understand that material. And what happens in a traditional non-mastery system is that those gaps keep accumulating so that when students get to an algebra class or a physics class, they just hit a wall. And it's not because they're not bright. It's not because the subject matter is difficult. It's just because they had a, a gap in basic exponents. And so the idea of mastery learning is, well, no, instead of holding fixed when someone works on something with a variable outcome, why don't you make variable when they can work on it? They can work on it as long as they need to until they master it so that they have a strong foundation to build from. So, Sal, I got to ask you about the growth because it's been tremendous of Khan Academy. And, and I have to say that I think anybody who's used it or knows people who've used it knows that the the reaction, and I, I think I'm getting this right, the reaction has been sort of visceral in viscerally enthusiastic in a lot of ways. And I think there's this aha moment when you actually experience it that almost makes you upset with the traditional yeah. uh, educational framework. Why Why is that? Like, why are people so enthusiastic about it? And, and what is this gap between how we teach our kids now and, and some of the things that you've discovered about how they actually learn? Yeah, I think there's two things. You know, we're out there and tens of millions of, of learners of all ages are coming, and a lot of them are, are filling in those Swiss cheese gaps that might have been happening through a traditional system, not just through the videos, but also, frankly, most of our resources are to, to, to build out a practice platform where people can learn in, in a mastery framework. And now there's approaching 2 million young people, many of them in formal classrooms with their teachers, who are able to do it. And, you know, to, to make sure we, we give proper credit to the system, this idea of mastery learning, it was fine 500 years ago if you're one of the few people to get an education and you have a personal tutor, you're a prince or something. Right. But then once you had mass public education and you have 25, 30 kids in a room, it's, it's actually impossible to do mastery learning without any support for, for the teacher. Every right. teacher I know wanted to do it, but they just couldn't. They couldn't do differentiated instruction. Now, uh, by, by making these, these practice problems and, and having the supplemental videos and things like that, uh, it, it gives the tools that teachers need so that they can actually allow all 30 of their kids in a classroom to be learning at their own time and pace, speed up, slow down as necessary. What's interesting too, Sal, and I just want to kind of jump ahead because I think this whole idea of we've got this skills gap uh, that we see in the United States and elsewhere. You've got job openings and you've also got people out of work who lack the necessary skills for those jobs that are open. How might we use what you've got going on at the Khan Academy to maybe bridge that gap? 
Yeah, I, I see that as, you know, at the end of the day, that's one of the key purposes of education, to make sure that people can be happy, productive citizens and, have, and lead happy, productive lives. And so uh, the way we think about it is what's holding a lot of these people back from, from bridging that skills gap is that they had some gap in reading comprehension or in math or in science when they were in seventh grade or sixth grade. And it's often hard to remediate that when you're 30 or 40 years old. And so we, we get letters from those folks going back. Some of them are now getting their, uh, their high school equivalency. Some of them are going back to college so that they can go into the associate's degree program or, or whatever degree program so they can fill that, bridge that gap. And the other thing I point out is most jobs, you know, almost every job that, that I've ever had, in terms of academic knowledge, you really didn't know, need to know a lot more beyond algebra, statistics, decent reading comprehension, know how to write well. And so we hope that by giving people that critical, those critical thinking skills through the math and the science and then building up their communication skills through the, the, the writing and the humanities, we can actually equip them for, for most, the core of most jobs. So, Sal, uh, only about 30 seconds left. Got to ask you, as you look across the portfolio, as it were, what's getting the most interest and, and therefore where do you see the most gaps, the, the biggest need as people come and download videos or, or engage with the platform? It's still, you know, we started in math and we, we've gone across subjects and grades now, but it's still in math. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's no surprise because if you have a gap in history, you can still study other history. But if you have a gap in math, it's, it's hard to build on top of that. Yeah, I got to tell you, my daughter's used it a bunch for math. Yeah. Math, uh, really love it. Sal Khan, great to check back with you. He's the founder of Khan Academy, uh, joining us on the phone from Mountain View, California. Check him out on Twitter at Khan Academy. Get up, stand up. Well, this is a real treat for us this afternoon for Carol and myself. We are joined by Vladimir Karamurza. He is vice chair of Open Russia and, importantly, being honored tonight uh, in New York with the 2018 Civil Courage Prize for his work around pro-democracy campaigning, especially as it relates to Russia. He is a broad thinker uh, in this area. We're just delighted to uh, have you with us, Vladimir. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here. So let's talk about Russia for a second, because I feel like Russia dominates a lot of headlines here in the United States, but in a very narrow way, really around investigations around the U.S. election, the Mueller probe, etc. Take us a level deeper. Help us understand where democracy fits into the current Russian mindset. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And too often people in the West, when they say Russia, they actually mean Putin and the Putin regime. And, you know, the two are not the same. And it's actually, I have to say, as, as a Russian who is democracy-minded, it's, it's, it's pretty offensive to have our country equated with a small group of crooks and kleptocrats and criminals who are sitting in the Kremlin because Russia is so much bigger and, frankly, so much better than that. And there are, needless to say, very different people with very different views as there are in any other country. And so I think it is a grave mistake to equate a nation with an authoritarian regime that is misruling that nation. And let's not forget that long before uh, the Putin regime began to engage in aggression abroad against Ukraine, uh, in in cyber attacks, in election meddling, and so on and so forth, it has been violating and abusing the rights of the Russian people for as long as he has been in power. And he's now been in power for almost 19 years. And that in itself is a frightening figure. Just think about the fact that there is a whole generation in our country. Now people a little bit younger than myself I mean, I still remember what it was like to have free elections and independent media in Russia. There's now a whole generation that doesn't. And all they remember is, uh, and all they know, and all they've seen on their TV screens their whole lives is Vladimir Putin and his face. But what is very encouraging, and what is, I think, very hopeful from our perspective, is that so many of these young people, so many of the representatives of this, let's call it the Putin generation, 
uh, are taking to the streets, as we have seen over this past year and a half all across the country, to protest against the corruption and the abuses and the authoritarianism and, and, and to express the, a very different vision for Russia than the one expressed by the current regime, a vision based on uh, the rule of law, a vision based on democracy and respect for the rights and freedoms of our own people, and I think that is a very, very hopeful sign indeed. How easy, though, is it to be a critic in Russia right now? And what's the backlash against some of those protesters? Well, it, we have known for a long time that it's, it's a pretty dangerous vocation to engage in active opposition to the Putin regime, and so many of our friends and colleagues, human rights activists, NGO leaders, independent journalists, political opposition leaders have been harassed, attacked, imprisoned, forced into exile, or killed. As, as you know, a little more than three and a half years ago, in February of 2015, the leader of the Russian opposition, former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov, was gunned down literally 200 yards from the Kremlin, on the bridge in front of the Kremlin wall, by five bullets in the back. This was the most high-profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia. Uh, and I think this is, unfortunately, a very apt illustration of, of what it's like to be an opponent of the Putin regime in our country. I myself am very fortunate to be sitting here with you today after twice experiencing uh, near-deathly poisonings uh, right. in Moscow last year and then before that in 2015. So um, this is what we have to deal with. But, you know, we think our country deserves much better than to have a corrupt authoritarian regime misruling us and so we're going to continue doing what we what we are doing uh, regardless of the of the dangers so what are you we've got to ask you about jamal khashoggi and obviously this has been a, a focal point for the world really over the last couple of weeks um in terms of uh, you know global powers the united states in terms of how they are dealing with it um what is your what is your take on it from someone who's been on the ground in a country where it's not easy to be a critic as he was certainly in saudi arabia Absolutely. And well, I, th I think, frankly, t too often and, and for, for, for too long, we have seen this uh, unfortunate concept of realpolitik coming from Western governments and, and the leaders of Western democracies who are supposed to stand on things like the rule of law and human rights and defense of d in defense of political freedoms, but too often are ready to make deals and cut cynical agreements with authoritarian and totalitarian regimes, being it, be it in Moscow, in Beijing, or in, or in Riyadh. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of talk, if we, if we want to talk specifically about what ha what's happening in Saudi Arabia, there's been a lot of talk about so-called liberal liberalization happening mm. there. And you know, one of the things that people point to is that they recently allowed women to drive. Well, you know, yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's good that finally in the year 2018, <laughs> you know, women are actually allowed to drive a car, whereas just a few years ago you, you would go to prison if you were a woman, if you drove a car in Saudi Arabia. In fact, a good friend of mine, Mia Al-Sharif, led a campaign for years and years in Saudi Arabia f to allow women to drive. She was in prison herself for that. Um, so, yes, it is very good that finally women can drive, but that, that does not mean any kind of liberalization. And, and I think this case illustrates very well what the real situation over there is like. So, Vladimir, I want to ask you, you know, you notably were a pallbearer at John McCain's funeral. He was a, a, a friend and, and candidly a very strong supporter uh, of your work. Are you finding that support currently in the United States and, and elsewhere from other corners of the political or other spheres? Well, Senator John McCain was somebody who was amazingly strong and steadfast in his commitment to these principles. He didn't just pay lip service to the, those principles, as so many politicians, unfortunately, do. He, he believed in them. He stood on them. He, you know, he lived them. And so when it came to defending the rights of, and freedoms of people everywhere, including in my country of Russia, he was, um, he was strong and steadfast in doing that, and, and we are deeply and eternally grateful to him. And he was one of the leaders, for example, on a Magnitsky legislation right. when mm -hmm. it was passed here in the U.S., which was, which was a law that laid down a very simple principle, that, that those government officials 
in foreign countries who abuse human rights and engage in corruption will no longer be able to come to the U.S., uh, own assets in the U.S., or use the financial and banking system of the U.S. You would think it's, it's such a right. simple thing, and yet right. for years and years, these people were welcome here. Right, but an important one. Congratulations on your award. Thank you for stopping by. A real treat for us. Vladimir Karamurza joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Doug Sioka back with us, CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners. Roughly $670 million in assets under management on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. So nice to have you back with us. How are you? How about yourself? I'm doing okay, just trying to survive. It's getting a little colder here. I want to start with you, Doug, about the midterm elections. They're only a couple of weeks away. You guys have a governor's race um, that's up for grabs in your state. Tell me about politics there and whether or not we might see a change when it comes to uh, the composition of Congress because either more people getting out to vote, younger people, minorities. I'm just curious what you're hearing. Yeah, thanks. It's a great question, and, and I'm not sure the significance of the impact on the market. I think what seems to be the common um, or the consensus is that the, the the House will go the way of the Democrats, and the Senate will be retained by the Republicans. We don't possess an out of consensus view of that, and you know it is interesting in that 18 of the last uh, midterm elections, the party in the executive office has seen a congressional realignment against their party. So that expectation would, in my opinion, likely be fulfilled. And even if there is a swing in the Senate to the Dems, it's hard to imagine they'd have a filibuster-proof 64th seat. So I'm not sure it sets up for much except more agonizing gridlock out of Washington. And if that is the case where the House and the Senate are divided, then we may fall back on more of an executive order administration than one that could ever be governed through consensus. And so does that make you more comfortable as an investor? Is gridlock kind of good to some extent? <laughs> I, you know, I think, Jason, that, that we've come to expect so little from functional fiscal policy from Washington. And, and look, there have been things that have benefited the economy by and large, but you know, there's always a consequence for that benefit. And, and we think right now we're paying a lot more attention to uh, the deficit and what's taking place and how it's going to be addressed and what we'll do to credit markets at the time when the Fed is actually trying to reduce liquidity. And it's wonderful to have stimulative policy, but it's equally wonderful to have a way to pay for it. Right. So if we have more gridlock where one or the other doesn't exist and the market would end up being the same in the absence of both, that might be an okay condition. Well, that, and what about monetary policy? Sorry, I mean, like no, okay. you, I, you've had some opinions about this. I like some of your opinions about this. It just in the sheer uh, sort of wordplay that you're using, picking up on the loco uh, rhetoric that we're hearing. Uh, <laughs> that we was say, a quote from the president. Yeah. yeah, that's a that's a direct quote. We know. Uh, so, great. how does this ultimately play out? Because we are, it's starting to feel a little bit more serious. This rhetoric, if if not only due to how frequently uh, it's happening, how frequently these, uh, these things are happening between the administration, really the president uh, and the bank. 
Yeah, I saw an interview with Alan Greenspan this morning, and, and I thought he made a great comment in, in when, he, when he acknowledged that no president of his knowledge, um, to his knowledge, has ever been a fan of rising interest rates. Right. No president, to my knowledge, has ever been more vocal in expressing their opinions than the, 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 the current administration. And so I don't know that Trump's, that, that Trump's perspective on the Fed is, is atypical for someone in his position, the expression of such with the type of um, grand language certainly is. But I, I think that Jay Powell, I, I respect a lot of what he's doing. I love the fact that he is from industry and not academia. Mm. I think he was dealt a hand that was um, reasonably transparent from his successor, and he's carrying that forward. You know, if, if you remember after Janet Yellen's very first press conference, of course, she was the first um, head of the Fed, and I may be wrong on that. And I, I don't believe Ben Bernanke ever had held post-meeting press conferences, but he may have. But I remember in Janet Yellen's first post-meeting press conference, she stumbled a little bit in the language and, and did her best to backtrack, and the market already had figured that the horse was out of the barn, and there was a heavy reaction, and a three or 400-point sell-off in the Dow, and a backup in interest rates. And I feel like the same fate has befallen Jay Powell with his communication in that um, interview last week when he, or now the week before last, when he said, we probably will go past um, neutral, right. a neutral stance, comma, probably. And I think the backtrack was was um, not necessarily considered because the, uh, the, 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 the consideration was that, all right, he's already given a telegraph as to the tenure of their policy. I don't know that that's the case. And you see that there is some dis- dissension within the voting board members. And even this morning, um, uh, uh, President Bullard from St. Louis came out and, and really right. seems like he is putting a much more dovish spin on some of the communique that came out yesterday. All right. We got to run. Hey, Doug, thank you so much. As always, Doug Sioka, he's uh, CEO and partner of at Kavar Capital Partners, uh, roughly $670 million in assets under management on the phone from Leewood, Kansas. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.